Welcome to Coaching for Potential with Rory Rowland. Join national presenter and consultant Rory Rowland as he discusses another aspect of powerful coaching and how it transforms people to improve your organization. Good morning. We're here today with Erica Keswin. She is a workplace strategist, has worked for the past 20 years with some of the most iconic brands in the world as a consultant, speaker, author, and professional dot connector, which i got to tell you, Erica, I love that. Her best-selling book, Bring Your Human to Work, 10, short, 10 Surefire Strategies to Design a Workplace That's Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World. It was published by McGraw-Hill in the fall of 2018. Erica works and her insights can be seen in various media outlets, including Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Huffington Post, O Magazine, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company. So, Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I love the book. I highly recommend it. And uh, I, I've already bought copies for my clients who are CEOs and thinking about putting together vision and mission statements for their organization. So, um Let's talk about what it means to be to to be human at work. So, what's the one thing to to work human? You talk about work human in the book. What's it mean to to work human? To me, it means to honor relationships, and okay. that's honoring relationships with your colleagues, with your customers, with the people that work for you, and also with yourself. Mm. And. and what are some ways that you see people, you know, honoring them? What are, what are some of the, the, the best ways to, you know, kind of be authentic or honor that relationship? Yeah, sure. So I break it down into what I call the three Ps. The first is prioritize, which is are you prioritizing relationships? And a question mm-hmm. that, that anybody could ask themselves is does your calendar reflect your values? And it's a way to – you know, make yourself honest and, and really look at have you been honoring relationships and prioritizing them. The second P is position. How are you positioning or leveraging technology to deepen relationships, but then also how are you putting that technology in its place? And you need to find that sweet spot. And the last P are what I, are protocols. And I often think that in this digital age, you know, excusing the pun, left to our own devices, we're not connecting, that without some organizational and personal protocols to sort of keep us on the straight and narrow, we often default to not prioritizing relationships. So those are, those are to me, the three Ps to help us all honor our relationships. I love it. So let's say, let's imagine that uh, you're working with uh, a group of folks and they ask you, they pop up the hand and they ask the question, uh, what do I do at lunch if somebody pulls out the phone or, or what do I do with my own phone? Yeah. So there is a study called the iPhone effect that found that if you're out to lunch or if you're out to coffee with someone and your phone is on the table, even if it's upside down, it will impact the depth and the substance of that conversation. And the follow-up study to that found that even if the phone is in your, in your peripheral vision, it will have that impact. So whether you're out to lunch with someone or whether you're in meetings, 
I advise people to have a conversation about it and say, hey, you know, what about for the meals today? You know, some of the millennials and Gen Z have a game where they put all the phones in the middle and the first one that reaches forward has to pay. Um, that may be politically, you know, not correct in certain kinds of, you know, business settings. But certainly to say, hey, you know what, how about for the first part of this lunch, the first part of this meeting, let's all put our phones in the middle so we can really focus and then let's take them out you know, 20 minutes before the end to, to get in sync and get, on, and get on our calendars. And I approach this by sharing what I call the science and stories of connection at work um, because it, it is backed by data that, you know, if we're multitasking, we are we're less productive. And, um, you know, and as I said before, there's, there's less substance. Mm. Yeah, very good. I, I love it because I know that is such a challenge and it's such a challenge for me when I'm out to lunch. You know, there's such a tendency to reach for it or have it out. And, and you're right. You can just feel the intimacy is not there. The connected is, is not there because the phone is pulling part of us away from, from that moment. We're not fully present in the moment because of it. So um, I loved another concept you had in the book about your authentic best self. And what do you mean by that? And you have some examples of what this means. Yeah. So being your authentic best self is being you, you know, being real, being willing to bring the person you are outside the walls of your company inside. And I think, you know, why is this? It was interesting. You know, I started to see the words human popping up over and over as I was doing the research. And I wondered why this was sort of becoming a thing, something that I hadn't seen people talking about being authentic and, and, you know, wanting to be in a workplace where they could bring their whole self. You know, my theory behind it is that as, you know, there used to be this very strong delineation between work and home. You'd go home at, you know, 5 o'clock and then you were, you were focused on home and you were not focused on work. Or even back in the days, you'd have the farmers and the sun would go down and they were done working. So as work has encroached upon our home life and there really is no separation, to me in my conversations that's led to people starting to think about the importance of being in an environment where they could bring their whole self. So, you know, I think at at its you know strongest level to me it's executives and leaders who are who are willing to be vulnerable and show that they don't have all the answers and they don't have it all figured out you know one example in the book is um a woman named Erin Moran who's the chief culture officer at Union Square Hospitality Group and when Danny Meyer wanted to hire her you know, she was very flattered but and you know she said great and then one day she had second thoughts and said, but Danny, I, I've never worked in hospitality. I've never even been a waitress. You know, my college jobs were tutoring and babysitting and doing some other things. And his feeling was that, you know what, it was just because she wasn't in the industry why he wanted her to come there even more. Mm-hmm. So one day she had to do a big presentation in front of about 120 employees at one of his restaurants called The Modern. And instead of doing sort of the normal you know, executive presentation, you know, she got up there and she owned it and, and owned the fact that she had not walked in their shoes and shared how, how she was feeling about it. And she said that she got a standing ovation, that people felt connected, and it, it, was, it really was a, one of the highlights of, of her career. 
And I see that now more and more that the more a person is willing to, to be themselves, the, it just has a ripple effect throughout the organization. Almost to, to share their vulnerabilities in an open way to say, hey, this is me and I'm not going to try to, you're going to, you're going to know if I'm covering it up. You're going to know if I'm trying to hide it. So just put it out there. I'm going to be me. And then to have to be accepted as she was had to be incredibly reinforcing. Yeah. A hundred percent. A lot of, yeah, a lot of street cred. A lot of street cred after that. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that term. Love that term. So help me on the next one. Tell me more about this, uh, the story about the pact that you talked about in the book. I loved it and I'm not sure if I can pronounce it correctly, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer to you on that. Alright, sure. So part of what I, what I wanted to do in the book was to share stories from well-known companies, you know, like Microsoft and LinkedIn. And then also find really cool, you know, startups and smaller known companies and see, and see what they were doing to bring their culture alive. So there's a company called Jelly Vision. It's based in Chicago. And I'm sure many people in organizations go through the process of, of signing up in, at the first of every year for their health benefits. And it's actually, after, I think it's one of my least favorite activities is going on the computer and filling out all the things. And so they sort of gamify this. It's what it's a part of Jellyvision's business, just to give the audience an idea of what they do. And so it's a very fun, quirky culture. So I met with the founder, Harry Gottlieb, and he was talking about the culture and the values. And he said, you know, we have something in the organization that we call the, the schmutz pact. Now, the word schmutz, it's a Yiddish word, and it, it means, you know, stuff. And... Um, you, the, what happened was Harry was out to lunch with two colleagues and Harry has a beard and had a little bit of schmutz or stuff or food in his, in his beard. And one of the women said, Harry, come over here. Let me just get this. You know, it's like when you're finishing your teeth, you know, Hey, we got some schmutz in your beard. And he said, Oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me. She said, of course I'm going to tell you we have a schmutz pack. And he says, what's a schmutz pact? And she said, well, you know, I, I'm going to tell you and you tell me. And, and I'm going to not sit here and assume that you know or you want to have food in your beard. So the idea behind the schmutz pact is to give people open and honest feedback, but do it in a way that's kind and that doesn't assume, you know, any type of malintent on, on the part of the other person. And so... Everybody that comes into the, I actually presented there during my book tour in the beginning, and I, and you know, there were a hundred people there, and you know, Harry, this has been going on for a long, long time, and Harry is not even there, he's not the CEO anymore, he's the chairman, and I said, all right, who here knows what the Schmutz Pact is? Not even know if it would, if it would live on, and literally every single person in that room, you know, knew what it was, and it's a way, you know, I talk about getting the values of a company off the walls and into the halls. And, you know, that one certainly is in the halls. Yeah, I, I just love the story, and it's such a great thing. But uh, it, the way that you say it again, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, being honest in a kind uh, but a real way is, is, I don't know if I'm exactly. saying that correctly. What's the way that you like to say it best? No, it's, it's, it's giving feedback um, and being constructive, but doing it in a, in a kind and helpful way. Yeah, I had a. A, you know, a lot of people can give feedback. I mean, they want to give feedback and help people mm -hmm. do things better, but they don't necessarily think about it through the lens 
of, of being kind. You know, somebody did something that annoyed me and bothered me. You know, or even, even the example where someone, you know, cuts you off in the morning when you're driving. You know, there's this, there's this, uh, there's this jump oftentimes to an assumption where that person, you know, was out to get me versus they did something wrong and, and perhaps they didn't mean it. Right. Uh, I talk about uh, the assumption of positive intent with employees, and I think that's absolutely true. I think most employees, uh, they they act out of positive intent, and when you ask them, you know, what brought this behavior to this point, typically it's a noble value or belief that brought to that point, but it wasn't what should have been done in that situation, and they just kind of misunderstood. So I, I love that. So how do you define corporate culture? What, it, uh, what, what does corporate culture mean to you, and how do you define it for your clients? Culture is the soul of the company. You know, it's what happens when the boss isn't looking. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's the real deal. And it's about knowing your values, making sure that there's not too many. It's about living those values and, and speaking them in a real way. And it's about empowering your employees to live them so that when you're not around, that culture is still happening. Uh, love it. And so uh, do you have an example of how people make that culture come alive? You know, what's what's one value that you like from one of the companies that you studied, and then how did they make that come alive? Do you have a story to illustrate that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the companies that do this the best, you know, first of all, they don't have they, they don't have too many values. I think that's a mistake that a lot of companies make, 10, 12, 14 values. You want to have a set of values so that when you walk around in your organization, you know, people can rattle them off and, and, and be able to say them. I mean, that's the first step in being able to live them is to not even have too many that you can't even remember what, the, remember what they are. And then from there, you want to think about aligning them to everything from who you hire to how you develop and promote people, recognition, and even – Interestingly, the, the design of your office space. So one example that I love is the company Lyft, based in San Francisco. They have four very clear values. When you walk around and talk to people, everybody knows what they are. One of them is create fearlessly, which I do happen to love. The, the, the idea of that and the image that comes to mind when you think about this idea of creating fearlessly but as we know, in today's world, many companies have moved to complete open offices. It's hard to get your work done. It's hard to think straight. People wearing headphones. Um, some companies don't have enough places for people to go to create fearlessly. So at Lyft, in their San Francisco office, they have a separate room. The, one of the co-founders is obsessed with Willy Wonka. And so there's a Willy Wonka room. And you go in, it's sort of like a a secret passageway with a picture of Willy Wonka on the door, and it's set up like a library. And everybody knows either not to talk or use their whisper voice, but it is a physical manifestation of this value of creating fearlessly, and people go in there to focus and to do their deep thinking. Mm. I love it because you're, you're in an environment. It's almost like a cathedral to creativity, and you're in an environment exactly. that makes you think broader and bigger. Uh, I love it. I love it. So you and I are both consultants. I've been doing this for about 25 years. You've been doing it for a while, too, I think 20 or 25 years or so. Yeah. And so one of the challenges I always have for clients is, okay, show me the ROI. And so 
you know, I, I, I have people who challenge me as, you know, is this stuff fluff? Uh, does it really have a positive impact on the bottom line, and does it work? And so uh, do you have data to support uh, how this has made an impact in the companies that these strategies that you've got in your book make a positive impact in the companies that uh, we're talking about? Yeah, 100%. You know, it's one of the reasons I was very intentional about the subtitle of the book, you know, that, that these are 10 surefire ways to design a workplace that's good for people but also good for business. So I'll give, I'll give a data point from each. You know, good for people. You know, why does this matter to us as human beings? You may have seen the study, or some of your listeners may have seen the most recent study from the Surgeon General that found that the biggest health risk facing our country is not smoking or secondhand smoke, but, but isolation and, and loneliness. And we spend much of our day at work. And so we need to think about how we, how we curate those conversations and get out of our offices to connect because it really is having, you know, a detrimental impact on our, on our physical and, and, you know, emotional health. And one of the studies that I found showed that the impact of isolation to our physical health equates to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it wow. matters to us. When we connect with people at work, at home, anywhere, we are wired for connection. Our oxytocin, our feel-good hormone goes up, and our cortisol, our stress hormone goes down. And so when, with, with all of these ways, when we're, when we're thinking about ways that keep that left to our own devices, right, we're not connecting, that's having a real toll on us as humans. On the business side, you know, you may talk about in your work the, the Gallup study that found that when you have a best friend at work, you are Absolutely. more engaged. You're actually seven times more engaged. Turnover goes down. Um, you know, ish, attrition um, is a bigger issue. And, and right. so, you know, inversely correlated engagement goes up when you have a quote-unquote best friend. Now, when I looked at that study, I wanted to better understand what does that mean to have a best friend at work? And when you peel back the layers on that study, I mean, what would make someone seven times more engaged? One of the main metrics within that study looked at whether or not people in the office are connecting with each other and talking to each other about non-work-related things. And so we need to think within our organizations if – You know, if everybody's calling into meetings from down the hall or having their phones out at lunches or in meetings, that's impacting the ability to have those conversations, which in turn is impacting turnover, engagement, and workplace satisfaction. Yeah, because when you hire a new employee or if you, if one leaves and you got to hire a new one, I mean, if if the studies have shown it's literally tens of thousands of dollars is lost in the, in the, uh, the transaction. Um, it's just mammoth on what happens uh, when that when that yeah, and, occurs. And, right. And the other thing that's so interesting, you and I, before we started the podcast, were talking about you know millennials and Gen Z and what they want in a workplace. And you know, the millennials will make up seventy five percent of the workforce by twenty twenty five, and fifty percent by twenty twenty, which is you know literally around the corner. And right. so when we think about you know as as tech savvy, and they're all you know digital natives, I think many people make the mistake of not understanding or or assuming that they don't want those connections. But in reality, they leave organizations if they don't feel connected to their leaders, 
and even to a greater purpose. So it's even more important to this generation. I agree. I've talked to it. My wife and I actually produced four millennials, and that is an incredibly common theme. So um, <laughs> I hear it all the time with them. And and when you when you mentioned the uh, the study, it was actually mentioned in a book, uh, First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham, and I refer to that tons of times. And that's why when I read your book, I connected to it so much because you're you're doing the same. You know, you're you're focused on the same kind of data that I am. Uh, if I can just tell one quick story about a client I've been sure. coaching with them, and they've had turnover that was uh, uh, the COO. It's a, not a huge company, but the COO had uh, has about 100 employees that report to her, and she would typically have 15 openings. Uh, they're now down to since we installed a coaching culture and a culture with a lot of the ideas you're talking about. Uh, they're down to now just two openings, and, and an incredibly you know robust work. You know the unemployment rate is lower than ever. And so the CEO was in line, financial institution, the CEO was lying, and, and he heard some women complaining about the speed of the line. And he thought they were going to be complaining about the, the slowness of it, so he kind of you know, tilted his ear to hear the conversation. And actually what they're complaining about was the speed of the line. It was going faster than normal uh, because that since I've been working with them, the, the turnover rate has dropped significantly. People are staying longer. People are more engaged like you're talking about. And the service level has gone up because of that. And so the speed of the line was not slower. It was faster than they anticipated because all of a sudden folks have stayed longer. They're more comfortable with the job. Their performance is higher. And guess what? He attributes that to being, he says, um, they're probably getting a seven-to-one return on their investment with me because of that process. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about in this is how it helps the, the bottom line of the organization. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I just love it. So that's when I read your book, I just absolutely fell in love with it. I just love these concepts, and they're just so great. So what's your favorite concept from the book or your favorite story from the book? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, that, that is tough. So I would say that the my favorite story in the book has to do with Ashley Peterson, who is the inspiration behind the the title of the book, Bring Your Human to Work. So Ashley was my Starbucks barista for, you know, eight years. And I would, you know, she would, she got to know that I always ordered a grande extra hot soy latte. She got to know my kids as I started to have kids and known her a long, long time, teenagers now. And she'd see me coming and would have my coffee ready. And a few years ago, one of my daughters became obsessed with the Starbucks pumpkin scones. And <laughs> Ashley had to tell her, you know, Caroline, it's great that you love these scones, but they're a seasonal item and they're only here around, thing, you know, Halloween. And then by Thanksgiving, they're gone. So we would go, you know, Caroline was only about nine or ten. And we, so we would go and, you know, we'd ask her how many are left. And, you know, it was a whole funny conversation. And then they ran out. So the day after they ran out, we walked by, I got my latte, and we kept walking to school. And all of a sudden, I heard someone screaming my name running down Broadway in Manhattan, which at 7.30 in the morning is not something that you see quite often. (laughs) And it's Ashley, and I thought I had left my wallet at Starbucks, because this was before the app where, you know, I would just order and have my coffee waiting for me. And she's breathing really heavy, and she gets there, and she's like, Caroline, I just want you to know, you know, I, I'm sorry there's no more scones, but it's now the holiday season, you know, November, December, and we now have this gingerbread, and maybe this is something you might like. And, you know, Caroline got this huge 
grin on her face. And in that moment, you know, here was this woman, Ashley, who I'd known for a number of years, known her as this person behind the counter, literally came out from the behind the counter to, to chase me down the street and connect with us on this, you know, human personal level. And as technology becomes more and more a part of all of our lives, of all of these kinds of transactions, um, it, it made a huge, huge impact. And I thought in that moment to myself, being, you know, 20 plus years in the human capital space, I thought, wow, if Starbucks or any company could bottle what she just did, you know, they could crack the code on, on any business. And the good news for Ashley is that Starbucks did notice this and she's been promoted four or five times since then. So I can't get my latte from her in the morning anymore because she doesn't work in this Starbucks. Instead, she manages her very own Starbucks um, on 55th and 5th. So if anybody's ever in New York, you can go into the Uniqlo building and say hi to Ashley. But um, that's, it was just she's such an inspiration to me and um, was the inspiration for the title of the book. I, I love that story. I love that story. And I'm highly encouraging people to grab a copy of uh, Bring Human to Work because uh, I just think it's just absolutely uh, a great uh, concept, great idea, and just the stories are are illustrated. And you're just a great storyteller. So, Eric, also have got some giveaways, so tell me how that works. Sure. I would love to give away some books to your audience. And what I would say for people listening to the podcast, Follow me on Instagram, and it's just my name, Erica Keswin, which is spelled E-R-I-C-A-K-E-S as in Sam, W-I-N, hashtag bring your human, and, and reference this podcast, maybe something you enjoyed or learned from it, and we'll put you into a raffle so you can win a free book. So, Erica, great idea, and they just have to do hashtag bring your human and mention something about the podcast today on Coaching for Potential, exactly. and away they go. I cannot say thank you enough for being part of the podcast because you're really talking about how to improve performance of the organization through values and culture, and that's so important to the whole process. So I cannot say thank you enough, Erica, for your time today. I just wish you the absolute best with this book and, and continued success. Thank you so much. really loved our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Coaching for Potential with Rory Rowland. Join us next time for another discussion about the power of coaching. This has been a KCTK production produced by Paul Lavoda and Rory Rowland. For more information and content, visit RoryRowland.com.